We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Cynthia Brugeau is an Episcopal priest, a scholar of medieval studies and musicology, and a leading figure in the revival of the Christian wisdom tradition. She speaks and leads retreats throughout the United States and beyond, both through her own wisdom schools, as well as a core faculty member of the Living School. She is an active student and participant in the work and the teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff, and an authority on centering prayer and a variety of Christian mystics, including Jacob Bohm, Teilhard de Chardin, and the anonymous contemplative masterpiece, The Cloud of Unknowing. Cynthia is a prolific writer, and her books include Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, The Heart of Centering Prayer, The Wisdom Jesus, Love is Stronger Than Death, The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, and The Wisdom Way of Knowing. She joins us today via Skype from Tucson. Cynthia, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. To open up our conversation, we would love to hear about how silence has presented itself in your life. How have you encountered silence or maybe a, a moment from childhood or, or some other point when silence particularly presented itself to you in a meaningful way? Well, I had the great fortune of being raised in the Philadelphia area, uh, which is the home of uh, Quakerism in Quaker schools. Mm. You know, that was where William Penn uh, allotted or alighted originally. And so my first meaningful uh, understanding of silence and silence, not just as a sort of absence of noise, but as a real sort of liturgical expression and mode of divine communion uh, came through participating as a young kid in Quaker meetings. Uh, part of the part of the drill when you went to Quaker schools, at least back in Philly in those days, was that they had meeting for worship once a week with the entire school. So they trooped us all, ranging in age from five to twelve, into the great old 18th century meeting house. We sat there with light pouring through the clear story window on these old wooden benches with well, well-worn well pads on them. And in the Quaker drill, you simply center yourself into the silence, gather and allow it to, to gather you. And when the spirit moves in it to speak, someone gets up and speaks. So I got to know silence both as a beautiful uh, modality in and of itself and also as a kind of gathering place that I, I experienced very early that silence has the capacity to converge and collect. It's not just an empty backdrop. Mm -hmm. And when it converges and collects sufficiently, out of that, speaking will emerge. And what makes the speaking so interesting, it's, it's like almost as if everyone in the room was given a piece of a script that's already been written. And our, our words come together and they form a complete whole. 
So I got to know very, very well, and by the seat of my pants, numinous silence. And the great presence of God and presence of connection in that. And that went a long way because I was raised officially as a Christian scientist. And so I went to Sunday school and had the usual thing that they do to children, which I Mm. think is quite frightful, Mm. not just Christian scientists, but all religions, Mm. where they basically indoctrinate you in beliefs that they can only dumb down anyway. As a kid, you're way too smart to know you haven't been dumbed down to. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so you get these these uh, kind of half-baked answers that you finally rebel against by the time you're 14, and then they, the church goes to the wall to try and defend them, and you leave. So, so all that stuff was going on for me on my Sunday mode, but, but because I had this great ba- backdrop in silence, I knew that there was a way of tunneling beneath it and thinking within it, and I never lost that. So after a long, long journey that took me through the Episcopal Church and ordination and the Eucharist and all sorts of other marvelous, wonderful modes of spiritual communion, uh, I came back to silence as a ground through centering prayer in Thomas Keating. Mm. And I, I bumped into that because I'd already, in the course of my own journeying, found my way to monasteries and Trappist monasteries, where silence is once again uh, practiced as a collecting and cohering uh, venue in which some deeper intimacy with the divine can take place. And so I I began to become a, a, a Trappist junkie. And it was in the it was in the practice of that 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 I I got to know Thomas Keating and Centering Prayer. It came for a uh, a ten day with the intensive course in the in 1990 at Snow Mass at the monastery, and the rest is history. Uh, I I discovered particularly as a as a teacher of uh, many 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 years as a ordained priest and uh, that actually. Once you began to form people in centering prayer and actually institute meditation so that it was the the starting point for their perception, it completely changed the way they think. And the kind of contentiousness and debating and confrontation and doctrinal exactitude, which tends to characterize thinking when, when people try to think about religious subjects, they always wind up thinking anally somehow. (laughs) And, <laughs> that's a good pull quote <laughs> I'm going to say boy, the social media is going to light up with that <laughs> Cynthia and, do you, did you know brother Mark Dole and Conyers do you remember him Brother, brother Mark Dole. Brother Mark Dole loves to say that most religious writers are constipated; that they write constipatedly. Yes. So this, this, this can be filed right under that same category. I love it's that. Quite true. And of course, what Centering Prayer did was it cut it all down. And you, you found people who didn't feel like when somebody presented something to them that their necessary Pavlovian response was to argue with it. Mm. And so it began to pave the way to, to a deeper sense of uh, that I already knew from being a kid in Quaker meetings, that when people gather in silence, a deeper kind of collective synergistic numinous knowing unfolds. Mm. And that's the only knowing that's worth a damn, particularly when you're working with the inner infinite. So 
that that became a core step in mine, and I became, as as you said, a, a teacher of centering prayer and contemplative practice. But I did so within the great luminous and noetic traditions of Christian mysticism, where contemplation is not so much an end in itself, and the via negativa is not in some sense worshiping emptiness. It simply is an understanding that you have to turn off the much more coarse cognitive faculties before a deeper kind of lupinous knowing, a, a knowing, knowing impregnated by love, as John Chrysostom called it, mm. can actually kick in. Mm. But contemplation for me really lives in the school of, of numinous, luminous seeing. And silence is the river in which that seeing flows. That's beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous. I'm curious, Cynthia. Now, so ordained Episcopal priest, were you at any point in parish ministry? Uh, I've been in and out of parish ministry. Uh, uh, there's only been a couple of years where I've ever been full-time responsible for very little parishes. Mm. Mostly, as you could imagine, I wind up as a assistant taking care of ev- uh, educational and enrichment programs mm. <laughs> while you've got a a pastor to raise the money and uh, <laughs> yeah, do right. the grunt work. Right. So uh, the reason where I'm going with this is one of my kind of pet kind of, I guess, concerns is how do we bring the work of silence back into the parish? It seems to be such a daunting question. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Mm. Well, you know, practically, practically, I know the route that it works if it works at all. Uh, but the real question is not the how question so much as the why question. You know, the way it the way it works is that you get a little centering prayer or some other contemplative practice group going, and you make sure that the people who are in charge in the church are actively participate. Mm. They don't just throw it off in the basement and uh, and say, oh yeah, we have a centering prayer group, but that they actually involved. And as you begin to develop and nurture a quorum of people that think in other ways, then you can begin to introduce them to some of the great texts and you begin to introduce them to contemplative Eucharist and contemplative practice. And they become like leaven in the lump. And from that from that basis, it's then possible to begin to start adding touches into the parish worship. Like you know, in some churches, at least if you're not in the deep south, you can bring in a bell bowl in the morning and ring it after the gospel or something, and there's there's silence before the next thing goes on. Yeah. And you can begin to introduce uh, teze chant and other things that, ha- that have a, a quieting, and you can even begin to uh, insinuate the radical idea that the idea in church in the morning is to collect yourself in the silence first so you think better and are... And you'll begin to have a quorum. If you get that leaven in the lump, it, it will shift the difference mm. it, slowly, mm. particularly if new people start coming in and are attracted. But I think the big problem is the why of it is that there's very few parish churches that are set up to be places of silence. It's a different job description. The parish church really serves an exoteric function. Uh, Silence begins to lead you in a mesoteric direction, more inwardly, more into practice. Mm. And you need that exoteric gate 
parishes are there because people are lonely and people are hurting. And they need to be structured, they need to be visited, they need to be given time to socialize. They, they need to be given a different venue in which to meet each other mm. so that the business of life gets oiled. And I think that we get in trouble when you say this is not their legitimate function. Mm. It really is. Mm. And so adding silence, you know, really when you're doing that, it's like taking them into a whole mode of being. And a lot of them just aren't going to go there. Right. And that's yeah, not that's because true. they're that's failures true. as human beings. It's because their needs are not in that direction. Yeah. And, and I find that particularly true in the South, you know, being a, being a northerner by, uh, by birth and by persuasion, although I have southern lineage, when I come down to the south, I'm always amazed how strong the parish church still is. It's all but dead up north. Right. And how many people still get dressed up nicely and bring their children and they, you know, and you realize that this is still functioning in a way as, as a social and societal and cultural glue, mm. uh, which it's lost its, its, its touch with. And, and I think there's real danger, particularly I think part of the reason our country is in such a mess nowadays is because that, that middle ground in civility and courtesy that used to be provided by exoteric religion, particularly by mainstream progressive exoteric religion, kind of fell apart. Mm. And people, you know, when the middle fell out, then people swing to the extremes and you've got zealots on one hand and mystics on the other. Mm-hmm. And very little in between to hold the whole thing together, mm-hmm. and and so so I want to go back and even revisit the whole issue of whether whether it's appropriate for silence to be a you know the assumption we start once we've all gotten a taste of silence is oh this is the cat's meow let's let's show it to everybody and give them more of it but I think the idea is to respect what is at the parish level and create little openings. Right. Where those that want to go dive deeper can do so, and they can do so still within the warm and welcoming blanket of the of the church. Not like these are trying to be the the elite citizens that are going to displace the rest. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Nice, Cynthia. For those people listening, I wonder if you could just share briefly about centering prayer and and what it is and kind of how it's an uncovering of, you know, Christian tradition and, and mystical tradition. And then also in terms of centering prayer along with your interfaith work, how that silence is kind of a meeting place and a, you know, a space for, for humanity to, to, to meet one another more deeply. Sure. Well, centering prayer is a very, very simple, no frills form of meditation in the Christian contemplative tradition. Uh, it was developed by Thomas Keating and a group of his colleagues at, uh, at the Trappist Monastery uh, in Spencer, Man- Massachusetts during the 70s. And it was developed in solidarity with help they were receiving from some people from other religions, uh, Buddhists, Hindus. But it was developed, first of all, in response to what Thomas and the monks saw as a growing atrophy of, of mystical intuition and joy within their own tradition. 
the young people were going off to the Buddhists to get spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. The monks were reading Iron John and other things for their Lexio Divina because they just, you know, and there was no silence. There was no, there, there was none of this noetic ground. So Thomas went to his chapter meeting one time and famously said to the monks, is it not possible to put the whole of the Christian contemplative tradition in a meditational format suitable for modern people living in the world? Mm. And one of the monks, William Menager, took him up on it and went back to the cloud of unknowing. A lot of people think that, that centering prayer was just copied from, the, from Eastern practices, but that's not true. That, yeah, the cloud of unknowing. And, and there, William found the key to it in chapter 7, that, that where it says that if you would pray, not a whole lot of words are necessary, but only a naked intent to God. Mm-hmm. And that you can sum this up in one little word and, and bring this into your prayer time and just hold it close to you and uh, let all other kind of conceptual thinking go. So that became the core of the method. It uses a sacred word, not as a mantra, not as something you say over and over and over, but as a focal point so that if your attention gets pulled into thoughts, any kind of thoughts, good thoughts, bad thoughts, if your mind gets connected with objects, you let it go. Again, it's totally not only in the spirit, but in the letter of the cloud of unknowing. So the reason it the reason it works and the reason you don't have to say that you know it's Buddhist or it's TM or it's is because every spiritual tradition worth its salt has an archetypal contemplative silent tradition mm. within it. If it if it doesn't have it, it doesn't exist as a sacred religion. Right. You know, and I, I would say that categorically, because that's the watering ground of, of all the traditions. So you can go back and find that access route into silence by any mode uh, within the particulars, the devotional and the theological particulars of any tradition. When George Fox developed silence with the Quakers, he certainly wasn't looking at TM. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He simply was called to something that's deeply there at a level in all the traditions. So centering prayer very, very deeply and, and in a way quite spiritually on the nose, quite in in uh, complete alignment with the radically surrendered heart of Christ, offers Christians a way to jump into the deep, luminous river of silence and to know in a different way. It has no trappings that would make people feel like, oh, it's this religion or this religion. It's, it's 100% Christian experience of the deeper waters of silence. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence.
So the other part of your question, Cassidy, was that, so how does it become a basis for a different kind of interspiritual reconnection? Uh, and this is one of the things that Thomas Keating was a genius at and pioneered in a way with his snow mass conferences. He realized that the place where interreligious dialogue was running off the rails was because it jumped into that mode we talked about earlier of dialogue and debate. And well, we yeah. believe in Mary. Well we, well, we believe it's all sin. Well, we believe it's all ignorance. You can't do infinite truth in a dialogical debating mode. But Thomas realized that if this mm. silence is the underground pool of everything, that if we entered into it and spoke out of it, that something would emerge that was a consensus, a synergy. So the, his original Snowmass conferences, which were a wonderful invited group of Buddhists and you know Hindus and Greek Orthodox and uh, you know Russian Orthodox Jews, you know you know whoever he could pick up, who was willing to engage the spirit of the thing, uh, and they developed a wonderful uh, camaraderie and a way of being that changed the nature of interreligious communion, I think. It's a worthy heir of what Thomas Merton and the whole monastic interreligious dialogue was was trying to be about. Thomas really put legs on the, under it and kept it going uh, in a genuinely uh, non-monastic, interspiritual way for the remaining 30 years of his life. Mm-hmm. And and jumping off of this, uh, I'm so enjoying this conversation. And, and, and so... I just as a little segue, I am an adjunct professor at a university and my what I focus on and what my research on is my heart is singing hearing you talk because the, the, the whole point for me is about thinking and wisdom, this discerning, this mm-hmm. back and forth you're talking about and your your focus on wisdom. Here's my question. I feel that this connection is so important, even when you were talking about how we learn to think and we think in a different way. There's this access that human beings have that silence opens up for us. So there's almost an, and I don't mean this abstractly, there's almost an academic need for silence so that we can think better, so that we have better ideas and write better books and educate our students better and et cetera. So I... I, in the ancient world, ancient philosophy, Plato, Pythagoras, they, these people knew that if you did knowing, you had to have silence. You know, Pythagoras school, they spent tremendous amounts of time in silence before they did their math. So I'm kind of curious, what's the distinction between kind of like philosophy? How do you see the distinction from something like a Pythagoras, or like a philosophy, a Plato, where you're doing, quote, educational stuff very well, achieving wisdom, and then say religious you know, the kind of the Christian path, the Buddhist path. The, do you see a distinction there? Are they on some kind of continuum? Because you talk about wisdom schools, and I'm kind of curious, Is it sounds almost like ancient philosophical schools and a recovery of yeah, that on some level. Are. Yeah. So yeah. I, if you could yeah. speak to that a little bit, I'd like to hear, because I am I adore that, and I want to hear more about it. Okay. First of all, I would say that, that if you read the traditions, the, the Christian tradition— particularly the Christian Eastern Orthodox tradition yes. well, and then kind of dialogue with that and some of the luminous edges of some of the others, particularly the Sufis, mm. you begin to pick up the pieces very clearly that this thing that everybody gets all breathy about nowadays, non-dual awareness, right. 
really it's not just an extension of the cognitive mind. Right. It's not like getting bigger and brighter. It is a whole new neurology of perception, which the, the Eastern Orthodox were quite clear in calling the mind and the heart. Mm-hmm. And I've talked with some neuroscientists nowadays who are saying that we're very close to a place where we can actually measure this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the heart math people were all over it, but they weren't rigorous enough to pass muster in academia. But the Dalai Lama and some of the others are getting onto it. In other words, the brain cells in the brain and the brain cells in the heart have to be in dialogue to to run a new operating system which isn't founded on either or. Mm-hmm. You know. So what you see, and again coming back to what we've uh, what we've got in uh, academia, mm-hmm. this 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 debating this thing that I joked about is anal. Yeah, yeah. It's basically trying to do infinite holographic holistic reality with an operating system that can only go ding ding eat that up it's it's like trying to use a typewriter to access the internet right it just is not a powerful enough instrument right so for philosophy to do what it really wants to do which is to do the the love of the logos which is not just words 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 i'm so sick of words Mm. But the the logos, the fundamental cohering pattern, uh, you have to run the operating system of the mind and the heart. Mm -hmm. So silence is, as we know, I think universally, the best, the most tried and true, the most dependable and the most durable access point to that shift in the operating system. Now, now I think we have a bad misconception which has grown up in our culture today and has been fostered, I think, inadvertently, even by people who are great advocates of silence, which is the idea, and it's, it's a kind of post-Freudian, post-Jungian idea, that, that silence is a place of uncovering, that the reason that science, silence helps, helps uh, theologians think better and philosophers think better is because you go into the silence and you clear the mind and you get in touch with your unconscious and you receive messages. And and so I think there's a lot of idea of uh, that, that gets silence a little bit unfortunately confused with Jungian norms of the uh, of the collective unconscious. Mm. Uh, it's a place of uncovering. John Wellwood cuts right through that crap brilliantly in one of his best chapters in his book, Towards the Psychology of Awakening, in which, mm. he dis- in which he makes a clear distinction between the, the, the Western take that, that silence is the royal road to the unconscious, and there we get messages and come back and speak. And the Eastern idea that silence is the royal road to non-dual perception, which is a radically different way of seeing, a Mm. rewiring of the whole operating system, which is incidentally also going to completely transform your selfhood. Mm -hmm. So there's not going to be any little eye there writing its superior books or having its platforms on this, that, or the other thing. It's a whole new ball ball game. And so I would say that you're absolutely right that uh, that that one of the reasons that I think that the the postmodern religious academy has has sunk beyond moribund into a kind of uh, you know Kafka esque postmodern hell <laughs> is because, uh, you know is because it's just trying to to think 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 and the mind can't do it. 
Right. And mm. and because it so has tarred silence with the brush of mysticism, as I was once told by a professor at my own seminary, mysticism is merely an excuse for fuzzy thinking. <laughs> right. Uh, right. You know, therefore, it's uh, it's not valued, and people get painted further and further and further into the corner, mm-hmm. so that in the end, they can't really distinguish the good, the true, and the beautiful anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think, frankly, it's the death knell. And I think it's one of the reasons why these outfits that I'm that I'm working for, like Richard Rohr's Living School, like our Wisdom Schools, like. Ilya Delio's gifted Omega Center. Right. What she's trying to do, what we're all trying to do, is create new venues mm-hmm. where silence is restored as not only a devotional pathway, but as a path of of, of luminous transformation of the entire being and of thinking. Uh, it is in the model of the ancient philosophical school, the old ancient Pythagorean school, which were really. Uh, schools of enlightened and collective evolution and prophecy. Mm. Uh, and they understood that without silence, you would default run right back into your mind and that your mind was just going to mess the whole thing up. Mm. You know, the interesting thing, Kevin, is that we had this huge watershed that for the, what the, what the Benedictine tradition carried into the West for about eight centuries was not only a beautiful devotional practice, but a mode, a methodology of training the unit of imagination, or in other words, the non-dual mind, which relied heavily on silence. I'm talking, of course, about Lexio Divina. And in the, in the methodology of the reading and the meditating, using the conceptual mind as far as it could go, the praying or engaging the affective dimension and the sitting in silence, you developed a method which integrated uh, that deep, luminous, coherent aspect of silence with the uh, with the actual faculties of the of the finite mind. Mm-hmm. And it, it developed a whole beautiful school of theology and interpretation which kind of reached its heyday in the in the twelfth century in the Benedictine monastic love mysticism. Right. And then the whole thing got replaced very quickly in the thirteenth century with scholasticism, right. which is rigorous mental you know, either or uh, linear uh, cognitive thinking. And it took the whole university with it. Monastic Lexio Divina died. I mean, it it lived inside, but it no longer was considered a valid interpretive device. I mean, it it became a pious little thing that people that were good Catholics and like centering prayer did. But it was no longer looked upon as a way of actually uh, engaging and integrating a whole new path of knowing within you. Right. And so when Bruno Barnhart came along in 1999 or so and wrote his magnificent book, The Good Wine, which is a commentary on the Gospel of John that's written straight out of Lexio Divina, straight out of the unit of poetic imagination, nobody even knew how to took it, take right. it. Right. I mean, I... It's, it's not dealt with in academia because it doesn't fit in any of the categories. Right. But it's an extraordinary example. It, it was, for me, the rebirth of philosophy mm-hmm. in the classic sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cynthia, I'd, I'd love to chat about, we, we find that many of our guests love poetry. And I'm curious if there's a particular poem or poet for you that kind of exemplifies either your relationship with silence or um, your thoughts on silence. Well, you know, uh, 
I couldn't say it's that simple uh, <laughs> because I, you know, it, it's more like I, silence is a steady part of my practice. And what I usually take into silence with me is the Psalms because I, I do Lexio mm. Divina. You know, with silence, as I'm an oblate of the monastery at Big Sur, and I just use that practice. But poems will merge, and I have, like everybody else, my favorite poems. But uh, I would say that silence for me is like the air I breathe. It's not a place I go to. It's not a. It's not a thing to be worshipped in and of itself. It's a pathway into something that emerges through it, and in it. I, I keep thinking of Wallace Stevens, the last line in his poem about the, the snowman that says, nothing himself, he sees the nothing that is not and the nothing that is. Mm. Beautiful. Something yeah. like that. Well, there you go. That's as poetic as you can get, Cassidy. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence, to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.